Front Lions, your national movement building show. I'm here in our secret recording studio with Channing Martinez and I, or me. Um, I'm very agitated today. Of course, I'm agitated virtually every day by the world, hopeful, depressed, uh, challenged why my organization can't do more, why I can't do more, why you didn't do more, why the world isn't moving in the direction we needed to. But that's the organizer's dilemma. Obviously, there's more hope at this moment than there has been in a long time. But saving it for another day, compared to where this country was at several times in its history, such as Reconstruction, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, we are starting from such a low, low level of black liberation and possibility that what seems to be going up, it is going up, but compared to what, as they say. So in that context, I am mainly going to tell you some good news and things to do, but I want to start, I'm going to ask you a couple of times throughout the show. Uh, Channing and I are giving very serious thought to the value of doing the show. I do it all the time, but I want to do it more regularly. I know we're not giving up the show for a while, but it's the first time I'm really thinking about it. Um, I do at least three or four hours preparation, sometimes eight for the show. Channing and I do three or four together. Channing has to edit this for two or three more hours. Think about that. That's probably between the two of us, 15 to 20 hours a week of work that we could be doing on more valuable projects. So I mean it in the most serious way I've ever meant it is I have to decide whether I want to keep doing voices. And for those of you who want to get rid of me, I didn't say I'm leaving. But one thing is I don't know who's out there anymore. You know, we have listeners when we used to be on live, of course, at least there'd be eight or 10 listeners per week and they were not always the same ones. So here's the deal. If you're listening today, which is July 13th, we need an email to you from today at Channing at the strategycenter.org, Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com saying as follows. This is who I am. I listen to your show once a year, five times a year, 20 times a year. 
this is what I do in the world. This is why you should keep the show going. And this is what I'll do. I'll get people to go on your site, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and register. I'll get five people to register. I will contribute to KPFK, which you can do right now by calling 818-985-5735. We are doing fundraising during this difficult period. I want to get involved in the work of the Bus Riders Union or the Strategy Center. I want to see who's out there. Um, I'm frightened to find out. And one more thing, you know, like when Channing and I went to this Bernie Sanders rally, I, we were just walking down the street and people said, Eric, I love voices, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of call and response, I need it more than that you see me in the streets occasionally, but are you going to be an active listener into our show? So Channing at the strategycenter.org, Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'm waiting for your email and I need something serious because we're serious about doing the show and the the story of whose lives we're describing now are very serious people trying to make something happen. So today what we're going to do is sort of stories of other people doing great work. The first is an appeal to help the San Francisco Bay View newspaper, which is the last and leading black newspaper in San Francisco. It's always been a radical black liberation, black, black, black magazine newspaper that Every time I've gone to San Francisco to speak with the Bay Area, they've covered me, they've had stories, but they're in danger of going out of business and they need your help. So I'm gonna read the appeal and we are not allowed to ask you to support this. We are allowed to say, if you're interested in supporting it, this is how you can do so. So it comes, it says, San Francisco Bay View racing to pass the torch in time. Time is a dictator. The incessant pressure of nearly 29 years of newspaper deadlines should prepare us for a new kind of deadline. Bayview editor Mary Radcliffe, that's me, has just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Since 1976, the Bayview has made do without a paid staff. Now those days are over. With your financial help, the Bayview can stay in the vanguard of the revolution we've worked all these years to build. That's now filling streets and newspapers around the world with demands unimaginable just months ago. Dr. Willie Radcliffe and I, they're both in their 80s, ask you to please go to our fund, GoFundMe page called Invest in Liberation, Save the SF Bayview at HTPS, well, you'll figure it out. Welcome home, Malik. As you contemplate why you think the Bay View is worth saving, it's dressed up with a delightful video by Hunter's Point's own celebrated filmmaker, Kevin Epps. Don't miss it and please share it. Roots Action and Critical Resistance e-blasted a different but related inspiring message that you can read and share. Now, Comrade Malik, who I think I know, Keith Washington, an extraordinary journalist, organizer, and agitator who writes behind enemy lines, volunteered last year to come learn and take over as editor upon his release from prison. Ah, sorry. 
and is scheduled to arrive on September 3rd, he and his small staff must be paid a modest salary. Passing the editor's torch for Mita Malik, who takes some time, and a 100,000 GoFundMe goal will give Malik and his staff a little time to chart the course forward and craft a sustainable plan. The goal is minimum, though, and we hope to exceed it. My own plan is to slip into a supportive role for as long as I can work. Uh, Long-time reader Marlon Bishop, currently housed in the decrepit, soon-to-be-closed San Francisco County Jail at 850 Bryant, is the latest generation of bishops, one of the highly respected families who made Bayview Hunters Point the fiercest and proudest hood in the Bay. Here's why he thinks the Bayview is worth saving. Thank You, Mary, by Marlon Bishop. On behalf of myself and all the vanguards here behind the wall in San Francisco and Oakland, we send our genuine and unconditional love and respect. We have heard the news of your unfortunate health situation, breast cancer, and our hearts are broken. However, I think you would be glad to know that our spirits are active, rebellious, and strong, just as you helped build them to be. I started reading the San Francisco Bay View many years ago when I started my re-education process. It was mandate, mandatory that I read every article, and I'm so thankful that I did, because it was within the pages of the Bay View that I learned a lot of what I was taught in public school history was his story, not the real story. I was extremely appreciative that I had a national newspaper that would help to correct the miseducation I'd received. And it goes on and on and on. So in my eyes, the San Francisco Bay View is more than just a newspaper. It's a national movement within itself, and it's wide-reaching effect to the reason that many of us black warriors were awoke and fighting for the betterment of ourselves and one another. So, every listener who's interested in helping, and I'm one of them, should go on the site, open up, go on San Francisco Bay View, Go on their GoFundMe page, invest in liberation, save the SF Bay View, and if you so choose, please contribute. Just for reference, the website is GoFundMe.com slash Bayview-Victim-Family-Fund. Thanks, Jenny Martinez. So here's the stuff that gets me sad and depressed sometimes. Um, First thing is the black population as of 2010, we don't know yet 2020, in San Francisco is only 6.4%. In 1970, it was 13.5%. So this 1970 is a key date because in 1970 in OA, black population was 25%. Today, it's 9% not even 12%, not even half. In 1970, the black population in San Francisco was 13.4, and today it's 6.4, less than half again. It's genocide in every single form, and here you have on one level, a brother in prison, why is a black brother in prison, saying how much the San Francisco Bayview helped him. Another brother in prison is coming out to become the editor, and a great revolutionary 
is suffering from breast cancer and says that she's going to fight as long as she can in the transition. It would seem to me the least you could do is support it, but the, the most you could do is really Google it and understand it, become part of it, become their friend. Uh, the strategy center is going to have a conversation about what we can do because when people need a hundred million, I don't know what to do, but when people need a hundred thousand, there should be something we can all do to get them that hundred thousand dollars. Each of you has that choice. I'm simply saying for my, myself, I plan to help. And with regard to the strategy center, we plan to help. Uh, so that's story one. It's a hopeful story, but there's a second part of it. Um, you know, I've been in the movement since 1964. So Mary Radcliffe, I'm in my 70s, she's in her 80s. Her husband, Willie Radcliffe, is in his maybe late 80s. Um, we're not going to be around forever. And what I'm frightened about is I don't think the legacy has been passed down. I think the present generation is doing some great work. But I don't think it understands the work that we did. I don't think it has ties to the CPUSA, which it needs to. I don't think it has full ties to SNCC and CORE, which it needs to. It has, I don't think it has full ties to even the Black Panther Party, which it needs to understand. I'm very worried that, you know, that the only person I know who's fully trying to get it is Jenny Martinez. I mean that. And I'm very worried that even if I pass everything I know to Channing, some will be lost in translation because uh, Channing has not had the experience. You can't fully grasp something you didn't experience. But that's one of my big missions right now is to try to figure out how to take the third world and black liberation and communist experience, the black communist experience, and to build a national leadership school for strategic organizing because I am terrified that we are gonna lose this tradition. And if we lose the tradition, I'm sorry, I don't believe there's any hope. That's just what I believe. That's a materialist analysis of an existential hope. So please help the San Francisco Bay View. It's an amazing institution and thank God it has a chance to be alive and well. So hey everybody, you're on Voices from the Frontlines. This is Eric Mann, your host. This is on, you're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. Streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. You just heard about the San Francisco Bay View fighting. We're trying, Channing and I are trying to fight for voices from the front lines. I am trying to grasp the significance of doing the show. I know it's also going to be a podcast. I know we'll eventually be able to promote the podcast. But I want to know, since KPFK is such an important institution, and we're going through this terrible COVID period, which I'll get to, you think of anything, the listenership to voices would be greater, especially since you can also listen to it on both kpfk.org as soon as we get off, but on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. So again, folks, it's time. It's a lot of time to do the show. Do you have time to write us an email at Channing at thestrategycenter.org and Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com? We'd like to know who's out there. Uh, the second is a major breakthrough in indigenous rights. Very happy about this. That's very structural and important. 
there was a, a very important Supreme Court decision five to four that upheld some very important issues of treaty rights. I'm about to read it to you from an email from our friend and comrade, Tom Goldtooth from the Indigenous Environmental Network. And I'm just gonna read the press release itself. It says, on the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. U.S. Supreme Court upholds tribal sovereignty in McGirt v. Oklahoma. Again, this is from Tom Goldtooth, and I just saw that the Indigenous Environmental Network was formed in 1990. There's something about that period, the fall of the Soviet Union is 1989. The Strategy Center begins in 1989. Uh, Indigenous Environmental Network begins in 1990. In Los Angeles, Community Coalition is going to have its 30th anniversary, I believe, this year. We just had our 30th anniversary. West Harm Environmental Action just had their 30th about a year ago. So in that 1989-1991 period, a lot of people came out of the Civil Rights Movement, came out of the New Left, came out of the New Communist Movement, we're looking at the world and say, what do we do now? And a lot of us moved into environmental justice as a way to integrate race, empire, because it's internationalism and anti-imperialism. So big props to Tom Goldtooth, who I've known since 1990. He's also in my book, Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer. Relatives. This is again Tom Goldtooth speaking. In a monumental historic win for tribal sovereignty and Indian country more broadly, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Muscogee Creek Nation today, five to four, with Justice Gorsuch, a conservative judge and Trump pick, delivering the opinion and being joined by Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Sotomayor. So in the Supreme Court, it's, there are nine justices. You need at least five for majority. So, so he, this conservative judge, became the majority and in fact wrote the decision, which is pretty incredible. Gorsuch wrote, quote, the federal government promised the Creek a reservation in perpetuity. Over time, Congress has diminished that reservation. It's sometimes restricted other times expanded the tribe's authority, but Congress has never withdrawn the promised reservation. As a result, many of the arguments before us today follow a sadly familiar pattern. Yes, promises were made, but the price of keeping them has become too great, so now we should just cast a blind eye. We reject that thinking. If Congress wishes to withdraw its promises, it must say so. Let me parenthesize. What the court is saying is, we only interpret the law. You passed a law, you have a treaty in place. If you have the guts to rescind that treaty, we can't stop you. But until you rescind the treaty, which God forbid we hope you never do, that treaty is in place and must be enforced. Got it? That's what the ruling said. With this, the Supreme Court reaffirmed tribal sovereignty and made clear that promises and treaties cannot be broken just because they are inconvenient for settler colonialism. 
This is now Tom Goldtooth's voice. Additionally, this decision affirms the reality that tribal reservations cannot be disestablished unless expressly done so by Congress. Muskegee, parenthesis, Creek Nation citizen, professor, advocate, and attorney, Sierra Deer, tells us Gorsuch's opinion is logical, straightforward, and easy to understand. Beyond that, though, the opinion is infused with empathy for tribal nations and the myriad broken promises we have experienced. This case will be cited heavily in future Indian law cases. It is a legacy case. Get that in legal term, what a legacy case means is that this case is so broad in the ruling. This is Eric speaking now. So broad in the ruling about the viability and perpetuity of contracts and treaties that can now be used by other tribes in other cases to even reopen other cases, because this is now the so-called law of the land. Indeed, the Supreme Court decision already has implication for the Osage Nation, which put forth a similar case in 2010 with Osage Nation versus Irby, which was subsequently disregarded by the 10th Circuit. As of today, that decision by the 10th Circuit no longer stands. This long-awaited decision in favor of the Creek Nation comes at surprisingly good news, especially after the Supreme Court chose not to consider the case when they first had the opportunity in 2019. This decision that effectively says, Eastern Oklahoma is an Indian reservation for federal criminal law purposes, may have wide-ranging impact on Oklahoma, which is home to 38 federally recognized tribes, who may also have compelling arguments for reclaiming their tribal jurisdictions. It may also have further impact on the Oklahoma governor, Kevin Stitt's losing battle with Oklahoma's tribes regarding tribal gaming compacts. That is to say, is Eric speaking, decisions in a certain way are just decisions. The day after the decision, every force is back in motion. The indigenous people who won are gonna take this very important decision and run it through every single legal possibility. The governor is gonna still try to say that he wants to in, infringe upon um, indigenous gaming rights because there are other capitalists who now say, well, we don't want to recognize even your sovereignty on essentially gambling. Every force is going to take this. Every lawyer is going to try to overturn it. Every indigenous lawyer is going to try to affirm it and expand it. The reason I tell you this is because this is what I do. This is what we do. Every day, you claim a victory on Monday, on Tuesday, we won a $25 million cut in the school board, a 35% cut. The next day, every force is trying to reverse that. So this is phenomenal news, but what they're saying is, we wanna take this trial. Now, all the indigenous lawyers and all the indigenous rights lawyers, I know, are meeting all day and night to say, let's take this decision quickly into every court in the land and try to over, even overturn on appeal certain decisions. 
So if you are, besides our friends in IEN, if you're an indigenous rights attorney, send an email to eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com, channing at thestrategycenter.org, and we want to follow up and have you on the show about especially what will be the next moves with regard to this victory. Jordan Harmon, this is continuing with Tom's article, a Muscogee Creek Nation citizen, advocate, and attorney explains, the McGirt decision is a historical win for the Muscogee Creek Nation, and time will tell how it affects other Oklahoma tribes and their jurisdictional claims. Throughout the opinion, Gorsuch recounts the decades of abuse and illegal activity at the hands of the state of Oklahoma encroaching into Indian territory. The court created strong pro-tribe language in rejecting the state's argument that because it had been illegally prosecuting tribal members for so long, it should be allowed to continue doing so. In this historic moment, the Supreme Court decided to uphold the United States promise to the Creek Nation in the 1866 treaty, creating our current reservation boundaries. We know 2020, this is from Jordan Harmon. We know 2020 is a peculiar moment in history when a conservative Trump pick stands firmly on the side of tribal sovereignty and tribal nations while at the same time strongly decrying the endless wrongs and injustices committed against the original inhabitants of this land by Oklahoma settlers. More so, this decision led by Gorsuch reminds our occupying government they have a legal obligation and duty to uphold treaty promises made with each of the tribal nations inhabiting the so-called United States. Cherokee Nation citizen Rebecca Nagel, creator of This Land podcast, which contextualizes McGirt v. Oklahoma, leaves us with these words. When our tribes were removed west of the Mississippi to what is now Oklahoma, we were promised this land would be ours for as long as the grass grew and the waters ran. That commitment from the United States was more than just a promise. It was the law. For more than a century, Oklahoma ignored the law, stampled on our treaty rights. Today, the Supreme Court said no more. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively ruled a portion of Oklahoma is indeed Indian territory. It's a great day to be indigenous. Well, that's why we have voices from the front lines, folks. That's why me and Channing do it, besides anybody else, we do it for ourselves. But we need emails at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and Channing at thestrategycenter.org. You know, um, there's a lot of people that are, call themselves socialists, like Bernie Sanders and uh, um, Jacobin Magazine and others. And they talk about bringing socialism to the United States. But we believe in the dismemberment of the United States at the Strategy Center. We do not believe the United States is a legitimate nation, let alone one nation under God, quote, indivisible. As it said today, a significant part of Oklahoma is now 
part of the Indian nation. And I am excited about the black nation, the Chicano nation, the indigenous nation, finding their own land claims, building on self-determination of this decision, just as black people in LA have the right of self-determination to get back 750,000 black people, 350,000 of whom are missing, just as black people in New Orleans have a right to get at least 100,000 missing black people back. I'm so excited for the indigenous people, so excited for Tom Goldtooth and IEN. And yes, let us know if you're excited at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com, channing at thestrategycenter.org. Go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, click on a registration. Can't you get us 25 registrations? Can't you call five friends and say, go on the damn site? I want to know who's out there because people like this are doing work. And I'll say it again and again. If I don't get more feedback on this, I'd rather spend this time directly calling Tom Goldtooth and asking him what we could do to help at the Strategy Center. It's a better use of my time. And you have to decide if it's of any value to your time. You remember the times That you have held your head high Welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines. This is your co-host Channing Martinez and Eric Mann. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara. Today we're talking about the San Francisco Bayview. We're also talking about the recent U.S. Supreme Court trial that upholds tribal sovereignty in uh, McGirt versus Oklahoma. Eric is about to talk about his friend Victor Grossman in East Germany. And later on, I'll be talking about LUSD and the coronavirus pandemic and whether they'll be going back to school. So, hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. And, you know, one of the themes today is about movement elders and movement seniors and all those things that I'm increasingly. Um, concerned about, and I, I want to give more and more of my time to this, both writing my own book, uh, In Search of the Revolution, The Journey of a Movement Organizer, where I've done a lot of the work already telling the history of organizations that I've been in, Congress of Racial Equality, Newark Community Union Project, work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Students for Democratic Society, work with the Black Panther Party, 
work inside the United Auto Workers, New Directions movement, work inside the New Communist movement, where I was a member of both the August 29th movement and the League of Revolutionary Struggle, and the last 30 years of my life working with the Labor Community Strategy Center, where we study history, interpret history, and try to make history. So I'm very concerned about this issue of the legacy, in particular, of the Black revolutionary nationalist and anti-imperialist communist traditions. I'm very lucky to have a friend, his name is Victor Grossman, and you can get his amazing emails at Wexler, W-E-C-H-S-L-E-R underscore Grossman, G-R-R-O-S-S-M-A-N at yahoo.de. I think that's it, D-E being Germany. Um, So Victor must be in his 90s. Um, He was a uh, member of the Communist Party in the United States, went to Harvard, um, like many of the best and brightest, became a communist during the 30s and 40s. He was fighting in World War II. And in World War II, at the end of the war, he was stationed in Germany. When he was, As he was stationed in Germany, he found out, of course, that the United States was engaged in a massive anti-communist witch hunt after World War II, which is one of the great crimes throughout history, which is as I tell you often, that the communists led the fight against fascism, that the United States never cared about fascism at all. And then after the war, the United States allied with the fascists in Germany and Japan and went to war with the communists, which was their plan all along. So his name at the time was Victor Wexler, and he was trying to figure out what to do, and he decided... um, to not go back to the United States, he was very afraid he'd be imprisoned. So he swam across this river, which I should know, I'm going to say it's the Elbe, and then we're going to check it out. A big river in Germany, from West Germany to East Germany. And when he got there, he was not welcomed. They thought he was a U.S. spy. It's lucky he wasn't shot. And they put him into a type of prison to interrogate him until they found out, oh my God, this guy really is a communist. He really is defecting to communist Germany or East Germany. He's written two amazing books. So the first book he read, he wrote, the first book he read is called um, Crossing the River, a memoir of the left, the Cold War and life in East Germany. His second book, is called A Socialist Defector from Harvard to Karl Marx Ali. Um, I went to see him on Karl Marx Ali, which is, is now in, in Berlin. It used to be East Berlin. He still got this apartment that the East German government gave him that the West German government allows him to keep. Um, I want to thank my friend Victor Wallace, W-A-L-I-S. Uh, check him out. He's a professor at the Berkeley School of Music. He's a good friend of the strategies that he's written many of his own books. You can check all of those out. 
Victor has introduced me to many great people. <laughs> introduced me to Robin Kelly uh, many, many years ago. Sometimes I forget how many people Victor's introduced me to. So when my wife, Leanne Hurstman, and I went to Germany, which she was invited, and we were invited to speak at the uh, Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, we went to see, or I went to see, Victor Grossman. What an amazing man. I urge you to read his book, A Socialist Defector, from Harvard to Karl Marx Ali, because it's a brilliant book, and he's very pro-communist to this day, and a big supporter of East Germany. But interestingly, as I've told Channing many times, some of us are called communists without illusions. We can tell you more than anybody what's wrong with communism. And yet we, we choose to be pro-communist because we can't stand U.S. imperialism. So it's an amazing book. He's a great writer. So he puts out, if you're following me, Victor Grossman at Wexler underscore Grossman at yahoo.de. Uh, he puts out the Berlin Bulletin. This is now number 178, July 12, 2020. He has a whole commentary on what's happening with the U.S. military bases in Germany in the fight for the first time to get rid of them. He's also always talking about the continued Nazism in East Germ in, in Germany that is not in any way a past tense. But I end with this particular sad note. Um, one greatly loved voice will be missing in future events. Heinrich Fink, Heinrich, F-I-N-K, born in a poor rural family in Bessarabia, thrown around by war events as a child, became a theologian in the East Germany Democratic Republic and was a lecturer, professor, and a dean of the theology department at East Berlin's Humboldt University. He just died on July 1st, 2020. During the brief era, when the GDR opened up to choices from below, just you hear, Victor is criticizing the GDR, saying in the brief moment when there was more democracy in the GDR that he, he wanted. In April 1990, faculty, students, and staff elected him, that's to say Heinrich Fink, 341 to 79 was the vote, to be rector of the whole university. But within two years, the winds changed, West Germany took over, and he, like innumerable undesirables, was unceremoniously thrown out, charged in his case with having helped the Stasi, which is the East Germany secret police, a terrible secret police for sure. Countless doubts about any and all accusation, protests by many prominent writers and big student marches for the popular rector were all in vain. Let me take a minute there. Um, Everybody who lived in East Germany, like if I lived in East Germany, I would want to protect East Germany from the overthrow of the United States and West Germany. I would believe that East Germany had a right to have an intelligence department. That's right. It would even have a right to spy on some people. That's what I believe. Since whether you believe it or not, you don't have to. The United States is spying on you as we speak. 
I do not agree, nor does most people, about the full extent of the abuses of the essential police state that the Stasi set up. Go see the great film, The Lives of Others, about that. There's many of us who are supporters of the German Democratic Republic who were very outraged about that level of interference in the internal affairs of its own citizens. And many people, by the way, fought against it. But when West Germany took over all of Germany in 1991, just remember it was riddled with Nazis. You hear me? The, a majority of the people in West Germany are either Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. So they got all upset that East Germany had a secret police, even though they have a secret police run by the US CIA and themselves. Heinrich Fink did not work with the Stasi. And many people in East Germany did not work with the Stasi. In fact, were being spied upon by the Stasi. So there were all kinds of demonstrations in support of Heinrich Fink. But of course, the anti-communist pro-Nazi West German government wanted to get rid of him. After one session, a Bundes as a Bundestag deputy, which is their parliament, he was elected president of the Association of Victims of Fascism and Anti-Fascists. That is to say, the Association of Anti-Fascists, but also Victims of Fascism. And later, it's honorary president, which is why they got rid of him, because he was an anti-fascist. Remarkable for his modest friendliness, says Victor Grossman. Humility, almost tenderness. Would, could never imagine him harming or scolding anyone or ever even raising his voice. But just as impressive was his devotion to his principles his belief in a humane Christianity based on struggle for a better world. He was both a Christian and a communist and saw no contradiction in the combination. He will be greatly missed. So now we've lost Heinrich Fink and we'll be keep losing every day. Veterans of the civil rights movement, veterans of the communist movement, the last veterans of the Spanish civil war. Uh, I want to make a big part of the rest of my life, which I hope has many years to it, focusing on reconstructing the anti-imperialist, anti-fascist, black liberation and black communist and world communist traditions, because I'm convinced increasingly that that's my most important contribution to history. And I'm happy to say that at the Strategy Center, we have Strategy and Soul books that Channing and I work on that has many great books in there, such as Black Bolshevik by Harry Haywood, such as Black Revolutionary by the great attorney William L. Patterson, who wrote We Charge Genocide. Claudia Jones, to the left of Karl Marx, a Black West Indian communist. Um, increasingly, I want to do more and more work around the books, around the teaching, and the teaching of Black and Third World pro-communist history. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. I would welcome an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com, chatting at thestrategycenter.org. Go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, 
And when you see that little link, click on it and register. Take good care of yourself. Well, that was, I just have to say, those were some very profound thoughts. And I don't know very much of that history, but I feel like I just want to go back and learn and take notes and go look up a lot of things. Um, the history of East Germany versus West Germany is very vague to me. Um, but I do remember we reviewed a, a film a few years ago, right here on Voices, uh, called The Lives of Others, in which one of the Stasi was actually organized by the resistance. And in the end, ended up fighting for those folks in the resistance. And it was a very beautiful film, which ends, which is a spoiler alert, but it's an old film. So, but nonetheless, it's a spoiler alert, but which ends with the, the man who was previously a Stasi walking by a bookstore and seeing his picture large and a big book about his life as a Stasi and flipping and helping out the revolutionary. So it does prompt me to want to learn more about that history, about the intricacies, because I think it's vague and purposely vague um, in many respects. That'd be great, Channing. And another thing to know is that when Angela Davis was a black communist on the run all over the world, uh, throughout being hunted down by both parties, the, all the children in East Germany sent her flowers and when she was in prison and sent her gifts, uh, obviously encouraged by the communist government, but nonetheless, she wasn't getting any flowers from white people in the United States with a few wonderful exceptions. So then if you study the history of the South African revolution, you see that all the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party went to East Germany to get weapons to go back in the fight against apartheid. So it's a lot of history and there's a lot of opportunity for you, Channing, as one of the, you know, one of the leading black organizers right now who wants to know that history. And for other black and Latino organizers in particular want to learn that history. Do I have to tell you the email again? Channing at the strategy center.org, Eric at voices from the frontlines.com. And yes, people of all races, of course. So I just wanted to give some of my thoughts as well on the other two topics that you talked about. And the first thing is about the San Francisco Bayview. And I don't know very much about them, but I think the conversation you raised about passing on the legacy of SNCC, of uh, MFD, uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, of the civil rights movement, it's a real, you know, that's a real reflection. Um, and I see spots here and there of the legacy being passed on. But as I'm learning more about the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, all these movements that were even within their fight more unified, I don't see that same large national and international sense of unity that I've studied about. And that, you know, that is my big worry. And so when I see like a black newspaper that I've, I'm now learning about closing, that is, you know, one of the institutions that is carrying on that legacy. And it's so important to preserve their legacy and to continue 
carrying on their work. And so I know I'm not allowed to say go support them, but it would be a very great thing to think about if you want to. <laughs> um, and the second thing is I did see the article about, uh, about uh, Oklahoma um, and I'm very taken aback and surprised because the Supreme Court is so conservative. And it, I, I mean, I just don't know what to say about that. That's a whole nother conversation about the Supreme Court, even though they're mostly Republicans and even though that Republicans and Democrats really think the same and try to act like they're not. Um, it's very shocking to see that the Supreme Court is actually upholding a treaty, which there's no history of the United States ever upholding a treaty, ever. And so it really does show the testament of IEN, of uh, Tom Goldtooth, and all the organizing in the indigenous, right? And I reflect on the shows that we've done here on Voices with Candy Mossett, um, talking about the work of the uh, Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, I think it's great, and I think we need to talk to lawyers and organizers next week and folks that want to get up and actually support this movement and really expand it from Oklahoma to the rest of the 49 states. Um, yeah, those are some of my, my thoughts. Now he don't know much about the issue, so he picks up the phone and he asks advice of the senators out in Indian country, darlings of the energy companies who are ripping off what's left of the reservations. I learned a safety rule. I don't know who to thank. Don't stand between the reservations and the corporate banks. They send in federal tanks. It isn't nice, but it's reality. Bury my heart and wounded me. Bury my heart and wounded me. Deep in the earth. Bury my heart and wounded me. Cover me with pretty lies. Bury my heart and wounded me. Bury my heart and wounded me. Bury my heart and wounded me. We get these energy companies who want the land, and they've got churches by the dozens want to guide our hands and turn our mother earth all up to pollution, war, and greece. Bury my heart and wounded me. Still built